Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Elizabeth Schechter, who is an Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. Her new book, Self-Consciousness and Split Brains, The Mind's Eye, is just out from Oxford University Press. Human brains have two hemispheres, whose major connection is the corpus callosum, a fiber tract that enables information to be shared between the hemispheres. Split brain subjects are people whose corpus callosum has been surgically cut to alleviate epilepsy. This and similar operations or conditions yield an odd phenomenon in which the patient appears to be two agents. For example, in controlled experiments, they may only be conscious of stimuli shown to their right eye, to just the right eye, but when asked to draw the stimulus with the left hand, they will draw the stimulus shown just to their left eye. It is as if each hemisphere is its own self with its own eye and its own stream of consciousness. In her new book, Schechter argues that while split-brain subjects have, have two minds, two subjective perspectives, and are two intentional agents, they nevertheless constitute one person. So she denies the common principle, one person, one mind. The book is a fascinating exploration of the neuroscience and psychology of split brains and their implications for our understanding of minds, selves, and persons when the hemispheres are not disconnected. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Elizabeth Schechter. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, thank you, Carrie. Thanks for inviting me here. So I'm really uh, looking forward to talking about your your new book, Self-Consciousness and Split Brains. Um, there's a lot of really interesting detail here, both the neuroscience and the psychology, the cognitive psychology and cognitive neuropsychology of split brain patients. Um, and then, of course, the ultimate, you know, philosophical payoff of, you know, what does this have to tell us about our own selves and minds and persons? Um, so before we get to the, the nitty gritty of the book, can you say a bit about, you know, how you came to philosophy and how you came to the writing of this book? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I did not major in philosophy as an undergraduate, but I took a few philosophy courses and I was also taking a lot of, um, cognitive science classes. This was at Vassar College, which had a cognitive science program. It's, I think it was the first undergraduate cog sci program in the country, actually. And, um, uh, you know, in my senior year, I finally took simultaneously a cognition class in the cognitive science program with Gwen Browdy and then philosophy of mind um, with Jennifer Church in the philosophy department. And that was just such a great semester. And I knew at that moment that I wanted to um, you know, continue to study cognitive science. And I decided to do it as a philosopher of cognitive science rather than a cognitive scientist, because 
I wasn't sure that I had the right kind of patience necessary for um, experimental work. Every discipline kind of requires its own kind of patience. And I thought I had the right kind for philosophy and for reading experimental work, which I've always really enjoyed, but not necessarily for running the experiments. Um, and then as for the topic, you know, interestingly, I think I found out about the split brain phenomenon several different times. So I think I actually first read something about it in a um, Carl Sagan book that my dad gave me when I was 13 years old. And then, you know, and I think it struck me at the time and then I kind of forgot about it and then uh, learned about it again in my intro Cog Sci course uh, as an undergrad with um, Ken Livingston. And then, um, but only really seriously approached it and started thinking about it in a graduate seminar um, at the University of Maryland. And uh, I wrote my seminar paper on, especially um, Thomas Nagel's paper, Brain Bisection and the Unity of Consciousness, which is still, you know, the classic philosophical paper on the split brain phenomenon. Um, and I was interested particularly, you know, if I can recall that paper, I was interested particularly in how Nagel uses the cases to um, make claims about the commitments of folk psychology, our ordinary ways of, you know, understanding people in, in psychological terms. And uh, yeah, the seminar paper ended up growing into a dissertation. And then I hadn't initially planned to develop the dissertation into a book, but was encouraged to do so when I started here at Washington University in St. Louis. And I actually didn't think it would be, you know, I'd been proud of the dissertation. And so I didn't think it would be as big of a task as it ended up being turning it into um, a book. But, you know, with the book length treatment, I was able to address for the first time, things like the unifying role of having a single body and whether both hemispheres are the site or source of self-consciousness, which I hadn't addressed in the dissertation. And finally, the question of split brain personhood in particular, which I also hadn't addressed earlier. Okay. Well, that's, that's a good segue to sort of the first, the first general question that I, that I want to ask is just, you know, you put the book in terms of a basic philosophical problem as what you call the unity puzzle, um, which is an inconsistent triad. And we all philosophers love inconsistent triads. So a, a split brain subject, you know, has two minds. That's one proposition. Second is a split brain subject is one person. And then the third one is that every person has one mind. And, and you know, just to kind of encapsulate the the sort of overall thesis of the book is the idea that you end up rejecting the one person, one mind rule, um, even though, uh, you know, and this is part of the interest is that you are do argue that there are two, you know, sub subjects of experience, two minds, two thinkers, two agents, and so forth. Um, so that's all kind of the mental side of things. But before we before we get to the the mental side, I think it's it's a really important to uh, introduce us to uh, some of the the neuroscience and cognitive neuropsychology. You know, what are the the, neuro, the basics of the neuroanatomy, the interhemispheric disconnection syndromes, um, you know, and the main features of these things, and then some of the experimental work that displays the really interesting phenomena that that kind of ground the whole the whole interest in the book. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, well. So first of all, uh, you know, we both already referred to the split brain phenomenon. I don't. Maybe I'll just say a couple words about that. I mean, that's the the term that's used to refer to a consequence or the common consequence of a certain kind of surgery, colloquially known as a split brain surgery. And that's a surgery that cuts through the corpus callosum, which is the 
largest white matter tract in the human brain and which connects the two cerebral hemispheres, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And a number of these surgeries were performed on adults in the United States in the second half of the 20th century, the first part of the second half of the 20th century, as a treatment for severe cases of epilepsy, um, characterized especially by drop attacks, so loss of consciousness. Um, and these were cases you know, that hadn't responded to um, uh, you know, drug treatment. Um, but although these surgeries were performed on human beings for strictly medical reasons, um, unsurprisingly, they have some psychological consequences. So the two hemispheres of the brain, after they're surgically separated from each other in this way, begin to operate independently of each other, not wholly, but to an unusual degree in the realm of per perception, cognition, and the control of action. And as you alluded to in your question, this fact, this independence emerges most clearly under experimental conditions. Um, and split brain experiments exploit the fact that the two hemispheres of the brain are not wholly symmetric with respect to their receipt of sensory perceptual information from the body and world. And they're also not wholly symmetric with respect to their control over um, uh, behavior, actions, and motor responding. So to take an example, I mean, picture first looking at a particular point on a wall um, keeping your eyes fixated on that point, everything to the right of that central fixation point uh, will be visually received by your left hemisphere and everything to the left of that point in your left hemifield will be received by your right hemisphere. This is true in your case also, but it, you know, I assume you have a corpus callosum and that allows that connects your two hemispheres and allows either hemisphere to gain access to the information that only a single hemisphere initially received. But in a split brain subject in whom the corpus callosum is missing, this information um, more or less stays put. So a kind of um, early kind of manifestation of the split brain syndrome would be this. Um, consider a case, you know, I often talk about um, an experiment described by Sperry. You have a split brain subject looking at a central fixation point and two stimuli are briefly presented simultaneously on screen, one to the right and one to the left of that point. So imagine that you have, say, a question mark on on the right, in the right visual hemifield, and a dollar sign on the left, in the left visual hemifield. And uh, then the stimuli are removed, and you ask the subject to say what it is that he saw. And he, you know, will typically identify the right hemifield stimulus, the question mark, won't say anything about the dollar sign. If you ask explicitly, well, what about on the left? Um, you know, the subject will typically say that he doesn't uh, know what was on the left, that he didn't see anything. Um, but now if you, let's say, blindfold a split brain subject um, and you give him a piece of paper and a pencil to hold in his left hand, um, which, uh, unlike speech, I should have mentioned, speech, the reason he is verbally denied having seen anything on the left side of the screen is because that verbal, in most people, including most split brain subjects, the right hemisphere is mute, it lacks a capacity for spoken language. And you know, the dollar sign in the left hemifield was received by the right hemisphere. So the verbal denial of having seen anything on the left was the product of left hemisphere speech systems. And again, the left hemisphere only receives information from the right visual hemifield, um, more or less. Um, but again, if you now give the subject a pencil to hold in his left hand, which is predominantly, though not exclusively, controlled by the right hemisphere, and you um, ask him to draw what it was that he saw on the screen, he will commonly draw the left hemifield stimulus, the dollar sign that he earlier verbally having denied, uh, you know, denied having seen. And then more interestingly still, if his, you know, if he does this with his eyes closed or while he's blindfolded so that he can't see what he's drawn on the sheet of paper, and you ask him to say what he just drew, he will commonly say that he drew the question mark, um, the question mark that he earlier, you know, verbally identified. Um, and that's again, because it's, you know, 
out of his left hemisphere that the subject is now speaking. Um, of course, if you now allow him to open his eyes and look at the sheet of paper and you ask him again what he drew, he will kind of sheepishly correct himself um, and say, oh, I guess it's a dollar sign, um, you know, with some surprise. But the, you know, the puzzle of the split brain phenomenon or what's so intriguing about this case is that, you know, it gets very difficult to talk about the subjects feeling surprised or what the subject said or what the subject saw. It's very tempting to say something like, oh, yeah, you know, the left hemisphere said that it hadn't seen anything on the left because it hadn't. But clearly the right hemisphere saw something on the left because the right hemisphere is able to, you know, draw a dollar sign when asked, please draw what you saw on the screen before. And then when the left hemisphere finally sees it, the left hemisphere is surprised. Um, But, you know, this is philosophically puzzling and and prima facie, you know, one immediate reaction is uh, to think that, well, this is really, if we attribute seeing and saying and feelings of surprise to mere hemispheres, we're really anthropomorphizing them. Surely, surely, you know, no mere hemisphere could ever warrant these kinds of psychological attributions. Okay. So let me, um, so it looks like, I mean, this kind of gets, gets to the next chapter of uh, the two apparently two subjective perspectives. But um, let me just ask about, you know, some people are, are actually born without a corpus callosum. As you, as you know, you're aware, and um, and and very often nobody realizes this until, um, you know, until they go in for an MRI for something totally different, and then it's like, oh, you don't have a corpus callosum. Um, so how um, how obvious in terms of like ordinary life or behavior uh, outside of these experimental situations? Um, how much do these uh, disconnection syndromes or something manifest either, you know, I mean, obviously people who are born, they don't know, you know, but even for those who are the, you know, the explicit subjects of these operations, um, what what's it like outside of the experimental context? Yeah. Okay, great. I mean, there's a couple different questions there because one thing I want to note, yes, as you said, there are people who are, um, you know, they're called acolosal subjects or people just with agenesis of the corpus callosum, the corpus callosum just fails to develop. Um, and, you know, they, I don't know, presumably they, you know, often they have other issues too, um, because something has gone wrong, obviously, if the corpus callosum has failed to develop, but you're right that, um, and they, they do have certain kinds of characteristic deficits of interhemispheric integri- integration, but they aren't the same kinds of deficits that split brain subjects um, experience. They're mostly in the realm of implicit perception and uh, cognition, whereas in the split brain case, the divide seems to be within consciousness itself. Um, and similarly, actually, for, for people who undergo split brain surgery in childhood, they don't end up showing the same kind of deficits. Uh, as do human beings who undergo brain surgery in adulthood. I mean, that's because the corpus callosum hasn't fully developed in children. It hasn't finished myelinating. Um, As for their behavior outside of experimental conditions, it's very interesting because the standard line has always been that outside of experimental conditions, you know, you would never be able to tell that there was anything really wrong or different about these subjects. The standard line has always been that outside of experimental conditions, they behave in an ordinary ordinarily unified fashion. Um, and, you, you know, you would think, given how often that's said, that we knew a lot about how split brain subjects behaved outside of experimental conditions. But so far as I can tell, 
you know, it basically was never little attempt was made to systematically study or observe how split brain subjects behave in their day-to-day lives. I found one paper investigating it um, by Ferguson, Rayport, and Corey, and they reached out to six split brain subjects and asked them whether they could, you know, follow them around for a couple days, see how they got on in their day-to-day lives, interview friends and family members, um, and in one case, fellow employees and an employer. And um, all six subjects agreed, and they found in all six of the subjects that they looked at, um, you know, these behavioral anomalies that were kind of striking and that couldn't be explained by, you know, the fact that the subjects were still taking anti-epileptic, you know, were still taking epileptic medications. So, you know, we don't know very much about how the condition manifests outside of experimental conditions, but the one peak we've had into it suggests that their behavior is not totally normal. Now, you know, the behavior is ambiguous. That's the whole point of, and the whole point of doing experiments is that you can kind of disambiguate the causes of behavior, but it at least, you know, the authors certainly speculate that a lot of what they're seeing is the result of interhemispheric competition for control of behavior. Uh, so what type of anomaly, for example, just a simple one example? Well, so yeah, a few, um, one subject complained that, um, making breakfast would now take a couple hours. So um, she couldn't figure out, it seemed as though, you know, she couldn't figure out that, for instance, while the toast was in the toaster, she could be doing something else. So um, a lot of the subjects report having difficulties, especially with, or were observed to have difficulties, especially with things involving kind of um, complex planning. I mean, as complex as would be needed to cook a meal, for instance. Um, You know, my hypothesis is that's because you have two agents who are trying to both participate in this single, you know, behavior of preparing a meal, but they aren't actually communicating with each other verbally about what to do. So they start doing one thing and then stop, or they mean to do one thing and then do something else. Of course, this would be via the left hemisphere that they're reporting having done something they didn't mean to do. Um, Whereas my argument is that, you know, in at least a lot of those cases, it's because it's the right hemisphere system that has done those things. Um, or, you know, ongoing kinds of um, intermanual conflict, or some subjects would seem to have trouble speaking. And then when they finally spoke, would speak in a great rush. And the authors comment that it's as if, as if to, you know, prevent interference from occurring, again, because there was possibly competition for control of speech in those cases. Um, Subjects, you know, doing things like you know, trying to head off in one direction and then finding themselves going somewhere else. Now, a lot of these are, you know, again, ambiguous. And and to some extent, we all have difficulties with this, right? Um, I certainly find myself sometimes, you know, heading to school when I'm meant to be heading to the supermarket or something like that. But um, this was really, again, it was, first of all, it was new. Um, interviews suggested that this was new behavior since the surgery. Um, And in many cases, the patients had become, you know, needed a lot, interestingly, more supervision because of a new kind of what was called absent-mindedness after the surgery. Um, And then second of all, it was just much more frequent um, than what would be experienced by, you know, a non-split subject. Um, You know, and then some of it took the form of actual, you know, intermanual conflict, quote unquote, where the two hands are kind of working at cross purposes, trying to do different things. Yeah. Right. So one last question on this is just um, how how long do these disconnection syndromes or or symptoms last? I mean, do do, do people after a a year, two years, five years out, are they 
closer to normal or is it? So, yeah, I mean, so what was normally said uh, is that the acute, there is an acute colossal disconnection syndrome in which intermanual conflict is quite common, for instance. Um, and that's pretty, you know, it's always said that that's pretty brief, um, you know, on the order of months rather than years, for instance. Um, and certainly you see, you know, there was a lot of interesting literature in the 80s and 90s targeted to towards explaining the fact that um, it became uh, certain kinds of you might call them stimulus response interaction effects, like the one I described before, where depending on which, where you put the stimulus, you can get different kinds of behavior from the subject. A lot of those results became sort of less consistently able to be found. And there's a lot of literature on that, but the Ferguson report Corey paper is from the eighties. Um, and it's looking at these subjects, you know, a number of years, five years, 10 years after they've had their surgery and is still finding these kinds of behaviors. Okay. Um, so you, you, you argue for, you know, two subjective perspectives and agents and, and thinkers, and, and we'll go through each of those. So let's start with the two subjective perspectives view. Um, so you, you use kind of throughout the book, you know, R to talk about the right hemisphere as a kind of a name for that. And then L for the left hemisphere subject or whatever. Well, actually, if I could just clarify something there, um, R is actually not just the right hemisphere. R is actually the entire human being minus the left hemisphere. Um, and L is the entire human being minus the right hemisphere. And the reason I did that is because I'm actually sympathetic to the notion that um, mere hemispheres can't think or, you know, speak or choose and so on. Um, and I you know, I think there's actually better candidate thinkers and subjects of experience and agents and so on in the split brain case than the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And again, there are an L or righty and lefty where righty is the entire human being minus the left hemisphere and its contributions to the subject's psychobehavioral functioning. And lefty is the entire human being minus the right hemisphere and its contributions to the patient's psychobehavioral functioning. And that makes righty and lefty in terms of their intrinsic structure and capacities equivalent to subjects who have undergone left or right hemispherectomy, respectively, where hemispherectomy is the removal of an entire cerebral hemisphere. And we know that you can lose an entire cerebral hemisphere, right or left, not both, but right or left, and still be a conscious thinker and an agent and so on. And, um, you know, again, righty and lefty are, you know, again, in terms of their intrinsic properties, equivalent to people who have undergone left or right hemispherectomy. I see. Okay. So, well, then RH and LA and LA, you know, right hemisphere, left hemisphere. So now just talking about the hemispheres, um, these have two subjective perspectives on your view. Could you, can you explain that? Sure. Um, so each is associated with a distinct subjective perspective. I mean, a subjective perspective is just what a conscious being has. Um, I'm, you know, drawing here now on pretty substantially on Nagel's, um, what is it like to be a bat? Um, what it is for something to be conscious is for that thing to have a perspective on the world. And what it is for something to have a perspective on the world is, you know, I argue it's for there to be, um, success conditions on imagining being them, um, there's no, you can't successfully, nothing would count as successfully imagining being a rock 
um, because anything you imagined would be something that the rock is not experiencing since the rock is not conscious, not a subject of experience. You could knock yourself unconscious, but then you still wouldn't be experiencing trivially what a rock is experiencing. But if something is conscious, then something would count as successfully, you know, imagining what it was like to be that thing that is, and I make the success conditions, um, very stringent. Um, realistically, we could never achieve this, but you know, you'd be successfully imagined what it's like to experience, uh, to, to you've successfully imagined what it's like to be some experiencing being. If you are experiencing all and only what they are experiencing during the time period, you know, that you're targeting, that you're trying to imagine being them. Um, and so the claim that split brain subjects have two subjective perspectives, one associated with each hemisphere is that, you know, effectively it means that if you, um, the success conditions on imagining being a split brain subject, um, could never be met by creatures like us, at least not via only a single act of imaginative occupation. Maybe you could first imagine being the right hemisphere system and then imagine being the left hemisphere system. And we could argue about whether or not, um, you know, uh, that would suffice to meet these conditions. But um, at least, you know, if there's some period of time, you know, T1 through TN, um, during which a split brain subject is experiencing the world and you want to uh, imagine what it's like to be the split brain subject at T1 through TN, you couldn't achieve that um, by engaging in an act of imaginative occupation with the very same duration as T1 through TN. At a minimum, again, you would have to do it twice. You'd have to first imagine what it was like to be the right hemisphere system throughout T1 through TN and then the left hemisphere system throughout T1 through TN. Okay. Um, so how about, you know, again, speaking uh Precisely. So the splitting subject also has uh, two parts that are distinct intentional agents, right? So the right hemisphere is uh, one intentional agent and the left left hemisphere is a distinct intentional agent. Um, you know, and if you look at the split brain cases of mostly when philosophers have tended to focus on the consciousness question more than the agency question, um, but of course, the very same behavior that gives rise to the intuition that there are two streams of consciousness, you know, or, you know, two subjective perspectives, one encompassing the uh, question mark in the example I gave earlier and one encompassing the dollar sign or the experience of the dollar sign in the example I gave earlier. Obviously, that same behavior um, also, you know, gives rise to the, it's kind of founded upon an intuition about agency and action. That is, it seems as though the agent that says, oh, I didn't see anything on the left is distinct from the agent that draws the picture of the dollar sign that was presented on the left. And that's because agency and consciousness are deeply intertwined. Uh, you know, ultimately, I argue that, yes, these two um, beings within the split brain subject, righty and lefty, um, they're distinct agents because they have intentional autonomy. So each is capable of um, forming intentions without interference from the other and and capable of even initiating actions on the basis of intentions formed again without any um, interference from the other and without knowledge on the other's part now actually carrying out these actions you know most actions aren't instantaneous they take a little time and successfully carrying out actions then will be harder for each of these two agents um, because it then you know, given that the action will unfold over the course of seconds or minutes, um, there's much more opportunity for the other agent to now interfere. And that's, again, 
you know, I argue that's at least consistent with the findings of Ferguson Rayport and Corey that, you know, you see all these unsuccessfully completed behaviors in split brain subjects. And that's possibly because, again, you have these two agents who are kind of fighting to control behavior. But, you know, at least at least forming the intentions um, can occur uh, independently in each hemisphere system. And I think that that's sufficient to be um, for them to be distinct agents, even if they end up being you know, often frustrated agents um, because they're unable to successfully carry out the actions without the interference of the other. Right. Well, that's what that was. Uh, so the idea it seems to be that that the ability to form an intention is sufficient to be an, a, a distinct intentional agent, whatever you're actually able to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think that they, you know, they often... And to be fair, I think this is more true of Lefty. You know, I think they probably often are able to successfully carry out actions. But that's right. I do think that, yeah, the ability to successfully carry out your intentions is not necessary to be an agent or a distinct agent. I mean, I think, you know, if you and I think this accords with ordinary intuitions. I mean, if you kind of lock you and me together in some robot um, and we can only jointly control its movements and you're physically stronger than I am. And so you get it to, you know, do more than I'm able to get it to do. And I'm very frustrated. That doesn't mean that we're, that I've ceased being a distinct intentional agent from you. The fact that I, you know, want it to be able to do these things that I'm trying to get it to do these things and so on um, is sufficient for me to be a distinct agent. So, um, I mean, that raises, of course, interesting questions about um, the psychiatry of this, um, you know, the clinical aspect of um uh what the um so what what used to be called Siamese twins right you know so so um yeah conjoined twins um uh you know those are sort of obviously in a way distinct agents and we treat them as such um uh do do split brain patients exhibit any psychiatric effects from this frustration? Um, uh, I mean, one of the things you point out is that um, they actually don't show more depression than like other normally not frustrated people. So could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, so it's common for, I mean, this is a complex issue. First of all, I will just say, because so there are some split brain subjects who seem to have developed some capacity to speak a little bit out of their right hemispheres, but never in full sentences um, because right hemispheres grasp of syntax is, you know, marginal at best. Um, so it's a little hard to figure out how righty is feeling. And, you know, that's one issue. A second issue is that very little attempt was done to, you know, righty often, you know, it turns out righty can, it seems, answer questions about its mental or emotional life, but very few of those studies were done. You know, most split brain experiments, like most psychobehavioral experiments generally are vision experiments. Um, and philosophers are often more interested in questions about personality and emotions and, um, you know, self-image and so on. But very few studies were done that directly speak to that. Um, via their left. So, you know, we kind of, to some extent, have to see what the left hemisphere system, what lefty thinks, and and then figure out to what extent we can extrapolate from that to what righty must think. Certainly via their left hemisphere system, split brain subjects do express, you know, a lot of frustration or some amount of frustration um, with their new kinds of impairments and with 
left-hand behavior that lefty regards as wayward. Of course, you know, at least a lot of this is intentional behavior on righty's part, I argue. Um, but first of all, there's personality differences here. Um, some split brain subjects are able to kind of, you know, they just seem to really roll with the punches of their, you know, new impairments. And then some of them seem much more freaked out by what their left hand is doing. Um, you know, and again, that's, you know, arguably that's what you should expect. Um, people have different sorts of anxiety levels. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that split brain subjects were, you know, again, this surgery was, was performed only in the direst of cases. Um, and so most of the subjects, even if, you know, I'm thinking about a subject who, you know, his family said, well, now he needs more supervision than he used to need. But he was really thrilled with the surgery because, you know, without getting into specifics, it was causing a specific kind of impairment that was, you know, really negatively impacted his quality of life. And his seizure, you know, he experienced some, um, basically he received more warning when his seizures were coming after the surgery. And, um, and that ended up being really life-changing for him. So, you know, yeah, they might have all these new kinds of problems and they report, you know, certain kinds of frustration with what their left hand is doing. And, you know, one suspects that maybe righty's frustration is even greater. That said, they were facing, you know, they were under, the seizures were so severe and so frequent that they had been undergoing, you know, progressive brain damage, um, before the surgery. So, you know, all judgments are comparative, right? Um, right, so, right. It's all relative yeah, exactly. to what you... Uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, I there's one split brain subject that, you know, the neuropsychologist Reese mentions once in a single sentence somewhere that there was one split brain subject in whom the intermanual conflict was so frequent and severe and ongoing that he, his left hemisphere system regarded the left hand as a second hostile person. And one one speculates that maybe in that case, you know, the subject was not really happy with having undergone the procedure. Um, but, you know, that's all he says about it. I don't even know which subject that would have been. Maybe not one of the ones that was studied most frequently. Um, so, yeah, they have frustrations. But again, because of their conditions, they had frustrations beforehand anyway. And, you know, almost all of them seem to regard the, the surgery as, you know, having improved their quality of life. Right. Because it doesn't eliminate the the seizures. Yeah, it doesn't eliminate the seizures. And and really, I mean, the thought was just that it would make them less severe, that it would, um, you know, that the corpus callosum was acting as a bridge by which the, you know, this kind of haywire electrical activity would cross from one hemisphere to the other. And the thought was that by, you know, getting rid of the bridge, you'd at least confine this seizure activity to a single hemisphere. But last I checked, you know, for reasons that were still unknown at the time, it actually did reduce seizure frequency also, and not just severity. Um, so, you know, um, I, it's funny for, I was just looking at an epilepsy forum the other day and someone was saying something like, you know, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's great. I used to get, I think she was saying like something like 35 seizures a week and now she's getting 25. She was very enthusiastic about that, you know? Um, so again, it's all relative. So do they, do they still do this or is this? So, um, yeah, this is very interesting. This is why I was on the epilepsy forum. Actually, I was kind of investigating. So, you know, what I, <laughs> What I had been told um, by neuropsychologists and neurosurgeons, and I was just speaking to a neurosurgeon um, a couple of days ago who, who told me the same thing, was that, yeah, full callosotomy is no longer performed on adults. Um, and I, you know, on the basis of having heard this so many times, I, it's a little embarrassing. I stated in the book. But now, um, 
I've recently discovered, I mean, there was one patient in Canada uh, who underwent full callosotomy as an adult in the early 2000s. And then I've, you know, learned, it seems that um, there may at least be one surgeon who has occasionally performed a full callosotomy um, on adults in England. And so now I'm trying to figure out whether, you know, it's not illegal in the US. Um, the neurosurgeon I was speaking to on Monday was saying, no, it's just, um, you know, full callosotomy is only performed on children. In adults, only anterior uh, uh, callosotomy, so section of the anterior two thirds of the corpus callosum is performed. But I'm thinking, you know, if someone's doing it in England, we're a much bigger country. I would expect that maybe there are, you know, maybe there is a surgeon or two in the United States who is still performing full callosotomy on adult human beings. Um, but, you know, I certainly haven't un discovered one yet. Um, you know, you get most of the benefit. What I've always heard is that with the anterior callosotomy, you get most of the benefits of seizure reduction with fewer side effects. So you don't get the sort of dramatic split brain syndrome anymore. And um, that's, you know, good from the patient's perspective, presumably, but uh, it also makes the patients less interesting from a scientific perspective. So, yeah. So that sort of goes to the next question where you, um, you establish that, or at least argue that um, the two hemispheres are distinct thinkers, right? Um, so can you, can you say something about, about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the basic, uh, and I'm, you know, I owe a debt of gratitude here to shoemakers, um, materialist account of personal identity. Um, and he, he offers this as an account of the identity of persons. I think it's pretty clearly an account of the identity of thinkers. Um, the basic, uh, the skeleton of the account is that, look, thinkers are, a, a thinker is a special kind of causal system. What kind of causal system? Well, a causal system within which certain kinds of activities go on, thinking, perceiving, decision-making, um, feeling, and so on. Um, these activities are themselves causally defined and they're causally defined significantly in terms of the way they interact, the ways they interact with each other. So, you know, perceiving gives rise to believing, um, but believing doesn't give rise to perceiving. You know, if I walk into the bedroom and I see my hairbrush on the bed, um, that perceptual experience causes me to believe that my hairbrush is on the bed. On the other hand, if I walk into the bedroom, believing that my hairbrush is on the bed, that shouldn't make me see it there. Um, if the hairbrush is not on the bed, the most my belief should cause is, you know, a feeling of surprise when I don't see it there. So again, you know, perceiving causes believing, believing doesn't cause perceiving. Um, and that is, you know, uh, essential to the identity of perceiving and believing is to be causally related to each other in this way. Um, now in the split brain case, um, these, uh, you know, psychological operations turn out to occur to have their essential causal profiles within one hemisphere system and within the other hemisphere system, but not or not as much across the two hemispheres or within the brain as a whole. So again, think of the question mark dollar sign experiment, um, you know, perceiving the dollar sign on the left, this, you know, turns out to be, um, to have the kind of causal role of perceiving, at least causal, uh, conscious perceiving, only relative to other states of the right hemisphere. That is, the right hemisphere percept of the dollar sign acts like a percept in virtue of causing a right hemisphere belief that it was a dollar sign on the sheet of paper. 
that's the belief that is then used a minute later to draw the dollar sign on the sheet of paper. But this right hemisphere belief doesn't cause a, uh, sorry, the right hemisphere percept doesn't cause the left hemisphere belief that there was a dollar sign on the, on the uh, left side of the screen. What's necessary to cause a left hemisphere belief that there was a dollar sign is perceiving within the left hemisphere, a dollar sign on the sheet of paper. So we have here, you know, again, percepts causing beliefs as it is in the nature of percepts to do, but only within one hemisphere system or the other. Um, and so, you know, again, like, um, yeah, I mean, psychological activities have their essential causal profiles within one hemisphere system or the other, rather than within the split brain subject as a whole. Okay, so um, yeah, one of the things that you argue, and this this is why I saw this as related to the to the previous discussion of uh, the psychiatric effects, and then the fact that they don't do the full thing, at least in adults, most of the time. Um, uh, so one of the things you argue is that um, uh, that if there is um, direct hemispheric interaction, uh, there there via sub subcortical structures. Um, that will not be substantial enough relative to the direct intrahemispheric connections to support the claim of one mind, right? So I just I just wonder if you could uh, walk us through that a bit because it wasn't clear to me why the the direct indirect you know uh, why that or oh, sorry hemispheric and intrahemispheric relative amount of 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 connection would matter. Yeah. Okay. Good. I mean, first of all, the direct indirect distinction comes in dialectically, because, you know, when I was just explaining the basis of the two thinkers claim, for instance, I said, well, you know, you have the right hemisphere percept of the dollar sign causing a right hemisphere belief, but not causing a left hemisphere belief. But you might question then you might say, well, look, ultimately, you know, once the subject is allowed to open his eyes, he sees the dollar sign on the sheet of paper. Um, if you then ask the subject, for instance, a leading question, like, so what do you think was on the left side of the screen? The subject says, oh, maybe a dollar sign. And again, that's out of the left hemisphere. So you might look at that and say, well, look, isn't ultimately the left hemisphere does form a belief that there was a dollar sign on the left side of the screen, say. And, you know, if you look at the causal chain of events leading up to the forming of that left hemisphere belief, um, one of the early events in the chain is this right hemisphere percept of the dollar sign on the left side of the screen. So how can you say that, you know, right hemisphere percepts don't cause left hemisphere beliefs, given that they're causally linked. And, you know, here I say, well, yeah, in, in this sort of case, and you see this a lot in the split brain cases, of course, you do have right hemisphere percepts causing left hemisphere beliefs, but only indirectly, that is via the mediation of the subject's own action and perception. So the left hemisphere, the initial right hemisphere percept of the dollar sign directly, that is absent the mediation of action and perception leads to the forming of a right hemisphere belief that it was a dollar sign on the sheet of paper. And that's used in forming the intention to draw a dollar sign on the sheet of paper, which the subject draws. And then the left hemisphere system or lefty sees that dollar sign in the sheet of paper and then forms the belief that, you know, it had in fact been a dollar sign on the left ultimately. But, you know, the interaction between the right hemisphere percept and the left hemisphere belief is indirect. And that's not the sort of interaction that suffices to make mental states belong to a single mind. So for instance, earlier I said, you know, oh, percepts cause beliefs and beliefs don't cause percepts, um, just to give an example. And, you know, of course, beliefs do cause percepts all the time. I believe my hairbrush is in the room. That causes me to walk into the room where I now see the hairbrush. 
thinking of a belief causing a percept, but that probably didn't even occur to you as an exception to the rule that percepts cause beliefs and not vice versa. Why? Well, because something about the rule, and presumably this is implicit in the kinds of um, concepts in, or you know, psychological concepts and the kinds of things percepts and beliefs are, the rule means, yeah, percepts cause beliefs directly and beliefs don't cause percepts directly. And that's because mental states of, you know, multiple thinkers interact with each other all the time, but they interact with each other indirectly. Um, so, you know, the direct indirect indistinct distinction comes in there because I'm saying, of course, right hemisphere mental states interact with left hemisphere mental states richly and perpetually. But if they did so only indirectly, it wouldn't matter how much such indirect uh, interaction there was. Um, all the indirect interaction in the world isn't enough to, you know, make mental states belong to a single mind. Okay, so that's the first piece of it. Now, my argument for the computer's claim would be a lot easier if there were no direct interhemispheric interaction after split brain surgery. But let me let me let me just stop for a second because um, uh, I don't know if you consider this in the book, but you know, it, it seems like there these are differences in feedback loops. And some can extend into the world farther than others. And anybody who is like an embodied mind theorist will, you know, immediately say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, you're going a little bit too fast, fast here with the indirect direct distinction. Um, how, how would you, you know, respond to them on, on your way of individuating thinkers? Yeah, I mean, I, so I've said this before. I mean, I think that, you know, if you have an extended mind sort of view, then I assume that if you have an extended mind sort of view, it's kind of obvious that a split brain subject is one thinker. Because again, you know, you have, and then your difficulty might be in, you know, um, arguing that Brittany and Abigail Hensel, you mentioned conjoined twins before, Brittany and Abigail Hensel are conjoined twins who, you know, are joined, um, their bodies are joined uh, below the neck. Um, right. You know, you might have trouble arguing that they're distinct thinkers because obviously their mental states interact you know, causally all the time too. But yeah, I mean, I take it that if you, if you're not drawing a distinction between different kinds of causal interaction, um, and are just saying that it's something, you know, then yeah, this whole picture goes out the window. So I'm assuming that that, you know, I'm taking a, I'm assuming a different paradigm here. I'm assuming that, you know, um, there are particular kinds of causal interaction that typify the workings of a single mind. Um, but yeah, I think that if you have an extended mind view that, you know, that I don't see how you could argue for a two thinkers claim in this book brain case. Okay. So to go back to the, what you were saying about the subcortical stuff. Yeah. So, you know, again, all the indirect interaction in the world wouldn't be enough to make mental states belong to a single mind. That's not to deny, by the way, that our mental states, you know, my mental states interact with mine indirectly all the time. In fact, construed broadly enough, most mental state interaction you know, is going to be indirect. Um, but it's the direct interaction that unifies mental states into a single mind. Um, now, you know, it would therefore be very nice for my argument if there were no direct interhemispheric mental state interaction after split brain surgery. That is not the case. Um, and, you know, I take that to be the major objection to the two thinkers claim that because of these preserved um, non-cortical structures, um, the hemispheres continue to interact uh, directly. You know, I'll note that the mere fact that the hemispheres continue to interact with each other via non-cortical structures, um, that's 
obvious. Um, the hemispheres can't do anything. They can't perceive anything or um, control action except via non-cortical structures. Um, but then, you know, I, the, again, the significant objection is like, well, how much of this is, uh, the significant question is how much of this non-cortically mediated interhemispheric interaction is actually direct in the sense defined earlier. So I have a chapter called The Objection from Subcortical Structures um, that deals with this issue. How much direct interaction is there? And I end up saying that, you know, it looks as though it's at least swamped by direct intrahemispheric interaction. Now you ask why the relative difference should matter. And I think, you know, the reason again has to do with um, psychic autonomy. I mean, basically, the less direct interaction there is, the more that psychological processes will only be defined, that is, will only have their essential causal profiles relative to other mental states of a single hemisphere um, rather than the other. Um, now, it's true that in the normal case of two thinkers interacting, like me and you right now, um, there's no direct interaction between our mental states at all. So the fact that there's any direct mental state interaction between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere clearly makes the two thinkers in a split brain subject different from ordinary cases of two distinct thinkers. Um, since again, the ordinary case, there's no direct mental state interaction between two thinkers, mental states at all. Um, still, I take it that there could be some direct interaction between the mental states of two distinct thinkers, um, without our still having the firm sense that they are distinct thinkers. So I mentioned, for instance, another pair of conjoined twins, Krista and Tatiana Hogan, who are joined at the, they're conjoined at the level of the thalamus which has been called the sensory relay station of the brain. And there's some suggestive evidence that um, they share perceptual information for that reason. So one girl can, there's some suggestive evidence that one girl, say Krista, can close her eyes and you can hold an object in front of Tatiana and Tatiana can look at it and Krista can articulate what Tatiana is looking at on that basis. And there's different ways of understanding how this might happen. It might just be that the girls share eyes in some sense and that Krista's experience doesn't depend upon Tatiana's having the visual experience of the object, but rather that Krista's seeing the object just depends upon Tatiana's looking at it. But it at least seems possible that there is direct interaction in this case, that Krista's experience of, say, the banana depends upon Tatiana's having a visual experience of the banana. And yet, you know, even if there is direct, we don't need to sort of wait and find out which of those is the case in order to know that Krista and Tatiana have distinct minds and are distinct thinkers. It may be that there's this really interesting, again, kind of direct interaction in the realm of perceptual experience between their minds, but clearly they have two distinct minds. And, um, you know, but that said, I think that's only clear because of the relative proportion. You know, the more the more direct interaction there is, the less psychic autonomy you'll have. Um, the more it will be the case that, you know, you're trying to imagine one thing, but you find yourself imagining something else because that's what this other mental system was trying to imagine. The more it will be the case that, you know, you're trying to engage in a certain kind of reasoning process and premises are appearing kind of at random again from another mental system. So, you know, that's why the relative proportion matters. The less direct interaction there is, the more psychological autonomy each of these systems will have. Um, so that's why, yeah, that's why the, the relative amount really matters. And that's why I really have to, you know, wade into the empirical weeds there and try to figure out exactly how much there is after split brain surgery. Right. Okay, good. Um, so 
you know, as we, as we, as we've discussed, there are two person, well, sorry, no, <laughs> there are two, yeah, two, you know, subjects of experience, two distinct minds, two intentional agents. Uh, but they, as you, as you argue in the, at the, toward the end, this is just one unitary person, you know, and that these two, you know, agents, etc., constitute a single person. So can you explain this, this final claim? Yeah, it's, um, it's surprising clearly. And at the basis of the, the argument ends up, um, being, features of self-consciousness in split-brain subjects. So I argue not only that righty and lefty are distinct thinkers, but I think there's reason to think that they're distinct thinkers of, you know, what you might call self-conscious thoughts or I thoughts in particular. So thoughts, you know, in whose contents figure, you know, whatever is the mental or conceptual analog of the English word I. Um, so in this sense, they're distinct self-conscious thinkers, but they, but on the other hand, they're really different from other pairs of self-conscious thinkers. Um, in a few different ways. So first of all, I argue that neither of them recognizes the other's existence. I call this lack of mutual recognition. Second of all, that um, instead of recognizing the other's existence or because they fail to recognize the other's existence, um, each uh, identifies itself as the entire human being. That is, each seems to assume that the split-brain human being is one thinker and each assumes I am that thinker. And that means that you know anything either of them does the other thinks I did that. So, you know, lefty will often complain about something righty did, but lefty will still say something like, oops, I didn't mean to do that, or I did that accidentally. Um, Lefty never says, you know, oh, that's not something I did, you know, accidentally. That's something the right hemisphere system did. Um, And and third, and most importantly for the one person argument, um, I argue that it's not just that they don't recognize each other's existence and that they instead both take themselves to be the entire human being, the only one home. Um, But it's that they actually can't distinguish themselves from each other on the sorts of ordinary first personal grounds that allow us to distinguish ourselves from other beings. And that's because they're so substantially co-embodied that, you know, the entire body feels to each of them like its own body um, and it's alone. Um, And so it's this lack of a capacity for self-distinction that first and foremost grounds the the one person claim. Um, you know, I argue that persons are special kinds of social subjects, that the rationale for the self-consciousness condition of personhood is, you know, at least in significant part, that self-consciousness, psychological self-consciousness creates a new kind of social agent um, because it's psychological self-consciousness that allows you to recognize that you are the object of other persons, at least the potential object of other persons, um, evaluative attitudes. And, um, that allows you to recognize that they know that you're the object of their evaluative attitudes. Um, and that allows you to recognize that they too know that they are the object of your own, you know, assessments and so on. Um, and because righty and lefty, can't distinguish themselves from each other and therefore can't recognize each other as distinct self-conscious beings or distinct thinkers at all. Um, They can't constitute distinct social agents of this kind. They can't relate to each other as distinct social agents of the sort that persons necessarily are. And they can't, um, they can't relate to third parties or second parties um, as distinct social subjects either. Um, And instead are sort of forced to jointly um, jointly constitute a single social subject and to exercise all their other 
you know, um, capacities in that way. Well, that, that sort of does raise a question. I mean, if, if it's, it seems like the body is playing a, an enormously important individuative role here for persons. Um, so you can imagine a case where you could just imagine that just as conjoined twins, we, we treat them as distinct people. Right. And, and very often there is enough bodily difference, uh, whatever the conjoined, you know, head or, you know, so if there are two distinct heads, uh, I forget which twins they were, uh, th- there are two heads basically on one body. And yeah, that's a, yeah. Yeah. Um, Abigail. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, all conjoined twins, yeah, have two heads because when there's just one head, we no longer recognize them as conjoined twins. Well, exactly. Right? So, so the, 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 the question is just, uh, you know, if we, if, if we started treating these two, uh, thinkers, subjects of experience, etc., as two two agents, just the way we do conjoined twins, would they still be one person? On your view? Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, on my view, what would be necessary for righty and lefty to become distinct persons is for them to, again, be able to distinguish themselves from each other and thus to recognize each other as distinct thinkers. Um, but you're right that. No one's ever tried to get righty and lefty to recognize each other's existence, which is, yeah, which is interesting because, you know, that's despite the fact that there were some neuropsychologists who happily said, oh, two distinct minds. But, you know, they only ever asked the patients to sign one consent form. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know what would happen if they were encouraged to recognize each other as distinct. Um, and, you know, I've asked some people and intuition seemed to differ, but I certainly I don't know how to rule out the possibility that they could learn to distinguish themselves from each other and that they could come to recognize each other as distinct thinkers. You know, I certainly mentioned that it doesn't seem like just an intellectual obstacle because the split brain subject LB, who was, you know, highly intelligent, used to read the split brain literature for fun and he became highly conversant in it or lefty, his lefty became highly conversant in it. I could say things like, oh, you know, you know, if he, if he scored 95 with 95% accuracy on a set of trials, you know, about which lefty was complaining the whole time, I can't do this, I can't see anything on the left. And you asked him, so what's the deal? How did you do it? He would say things like, well, the information was being conveyed to my right hemisphere, um, but my speech centers are in the left hemisphere, so I couldn't access that information. You know, he was very fluent in the literature. But even he, on a moment-to-moment basis, when righty would do something, he or lefty would say, whoops, you know, I didn't mean to do that instead of ever realizing like, oh no, that's not something I did accidentally. That's something the right hemisphere guy did deliberately. So it seems as though it's not a mere intellectual obstacle to mutual recognition, but something again, more pre-theoretic. You know, that said again, I don't know how to rule out the possibility that they, that it's not an absolute incapacity, that the capacity could be developed in the same way that children's capacity for self-consciousness can be developed. Um, and yeah, on my account, if it did develop, then yeah, righty and lefty would at that point cease to be parts of one person. That person would cease to exist. Um, they would now be distinct persons. Okay, good. Yeah. So it's sort of, it's a constitutive claim for the the two agents and the hemispheres to be one person, but it's actually, con- it's, conting- it's a contingent type of constituency. Okay. Um well, we are we're we're practically out of time. Um, so let me just um, ask you: sort of, you end the book with an interesting coda of sorts on duality myths, right? You know, the Jekyll and Hyde, uh, where we recognize in in various forms of art uh, 
basically I'll just say, you know, two persons in one body and we're kind of being uh, metaphorical about it or not literal in some way. Jekyll and Hyde are, are the same person, but then, yeah, they're not. Um, could you just say something about how this uh, relates to your discussion of split brain? I was trying to do a couple things here. I mean, I basically, you know, here I've been arguing that, okay, so we have two distinct thinkers that jointly constitute one person and conscious thinkers and so on. And that's, you know, very surprising. And I was partly just trying to say, look, there's some, even though the cases are different, there's some precedent, even within ordinary thought for recognizing, you know, a single person as having multiple selves and as being, you know, substantively psychologically disunified. I mean, in some ways, Jekyll and Hyde are more, you know, you know, more disunified than righty and lefty, um, since Jekyll and Hyde have, you know, really different moral characters and impulses and so on. And there's no reason to think that that's true of the two hemisphere systems of a split brain subject. And, um, and I wanted to say this partly because philosophers have always said, and, and this is something Nagel argues originally, again, in like the first philosophical paper I ever read on the split brain phenomenon and that most of us ever read on the split brain phenomenon. He said, you know, the reason the split brain cases interest people is because we think of people as psychologically unified. And then these, these human beings don't appear to be psychologically unified. And I started just wondering, you know, whether that's true and in what sense it's true that we think of people as, you know, substantively psychologically disunified. And I, you know, I, I have a kind of I arrive at a kind of mixed position. I think, you know, on the one hand, it's true that ordinary thought about persons forces us to make these kind of simplifying assumptions about other people's minds. But on the other hand, I take these duality myths to show that we recognize that they are just simplifying assumptions um, and that people are actually a lot more psychologically complex and, and contradictory than we're kind of forced to assume they are for various reasons. And duality myths are one you know, way of um, coping with or symbolically representing this tension that's within ordinary thought itself. Because, you know, again, Nagel, he use, he actually uses the split brain cases to highlight what he argues as a tension between ordinary thought and the scientific perspective on human beings. Um, and I, I'm kind of using duality myths to show that, no, this tension is already there within ordinary thought itself. It precedes a scientific study of the human mind. Um, again, ordinary thought itself, again, is, you know, there's a strand of it that is forced to think of people as psychologically unified in various respects, but people are also really well aware on some level that this is simplistic and that people are a lot more psychologically, again, complex and contradictory um, than we are forced to assume. Okay. Uh, very good. So what, what is, I'd like to end with a question about what is on the horizon for you? Are you doing a follow-up to this or turning to something completely different? Um, I am continuing to do some split brain work, of course, um, and some of this will be, um, uh, some of this might even be um, empirical work with the neuropsychologist Yara Pinto, who had a recent um, kind of uh, very prominent um, article on studying some split brain subjects from Italy. And he sort of didn't obtain some of the kinds of response, stimulus response interaction effects that I earlier described. So um, I'm participating in a project on that. Um, with him and with the philosopher Tim Bain. I'm also working on um, dissociative, I have a couple different pieces that I'm working on, on dissociative identity disorder, including second party understanding of dissociative identity disorder. And I got into this through my interest in the split brain cases and particularly wondering, 
are we actually capable of relating to another human being as if they were multiple persons? Um, and I think the dissociative identity disorder would be the clearest possible test case. And, um, and then finally, I'm working on a more kind of psychodynamic kind of psychological disunity um, on self-deception and defending the so-called avowal account of self-deception, according to which the agent who is self-deceived that P um, believes not P and yet is sincere when she asserts P. Um, apparently paradoxical account of self-deception. Okay. Uh, well, we are, we are finished, so I'd like to thank you again for joining New Books and Philosophy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to my interview with Elizabeth Schechter, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. We've been talking about her new book, Self-Consciousness and Split Brains, The Mind's Eye, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books and Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.